Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for our time today. Uh, we thank you for this facility. We thank you for the air conditioner to help keep us cool. Uh, we thank you most of all for making yourself known so uh, wonderfully through your word, uh, your word that testifies ultimately to your son, the word made flesh. We pray that we would see more of who you are today, more of the glory of Christ, our Saviour and Lord. Uh, change us by your word today. Transform our hearts so that we may be uh, fully pleasing to you and, and may know you more. Um, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 73, commencing from verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Uh, well, I have a confession to make, friends. Um, I'm scared of heights. You know, uh, maybe you haven't known, known that about me. I always have been. And I stand on the edge of a balcony, um, a high balcony, you know, it's not uh, crippling, but I always get this, you know, that feeling in your stomach that just goes to jello in your kind of legs. Other people just waltz on up to the edge of these balconies and enjoy the view, and I am sort of have this growing fear within me. And 
Um, uh, this, uh, as I picture myself slipping and going over the edge, you know, so it's a, it can be a, quite a disorienting kind of experience, actually. And maybe you're the same, maybe that's not you, but uh, today's psalm starts with this image of someone wobbling uh, on the edge, someone who's just totally disoriented, about to fall, and you can see it there in verse 2. He writes, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. Uh, this guy in this psalm is, has a much more serious uh, wobble <laughs> than me uh, out on the balcony. He has much more serious disorientation. It's not on, he's not out on a physical ledge. He's someone who's in emotional turmoil, who's on a kind of spiritual ledge, feeling his feet about to give way beneath him. Uh, we're, we're taking this trip through the Psalms. Uh, it's really just getting a taste as we, over these five weeks, trying to look at five different Psalms through the whole book of the Psalms. We're, we're, it's, um, we're trying to get a taste for the whole diversity and how, they, how the Psalms speak to this whole range of human experience and our emotional life. And uh, it's, So it's inter- in- really interesting how the Psalms do this. We've, we've gone from uh, the first week, we looked at one of the last Psalms, about praise and worship of God, the big picture of why we're here on earth. Um, we, uh, we looked at uh, broken confession of sin a couple of weeks ago. Last week's uh, this great psalm of confident trust. Uh, here, this person is tossed around by doubt and envy, the person in this psalm. It's one reason why the psalms are so precious for us. Uh, we all have seasons in our lives, don't we? Sometimes they're filled with joy, sometimes with sadness, sometimes with peace and trust, sometimes with an unsettled and dousing heart. There are lots of seasons, and, and, and sometimes, a lot of the time actually, this kind of strange mixture of all of them, uh, mixed all together. The Psalms give us these songs, these prayers really, these prayers for every season of the soul, um, every emotion that rises up within us. They're, very, they're really helpful. As a culture, though, we, we've kind of had a bit of a hard time trying to figure out how to deal with our emotions. If you, uh, we've gone from one time with uh, the kind of Victorian stiff upper lip, if you know that kind of mentality, where you just bury your emotions, you don't really acknowledge them, you just get on, do your work, do your duty, and don't worry too much about what's going on inside you. Um, we've kind of swung to the opposite end of the uh, spectrum now, though. We seem to have swung there, uh, where our emotions are raised to such this incredible height, they're untouchable now. Um, you can't question or fight your feelings. We have this strange idea in our culture today that it's your feelings are who you really are. So if you feel something, uh, that really is who you truly are not your beliefs or actions or objective things about you. It's your feelings who show the real me. This is kind of the spirit of our age. So if I'm going to be authentic to who I really am, I have to follow them wherever they lead. So we kind of swing from these two extremes, just deny your feelings or uh, raise them to the status of the the, the truest thing about you and uh, we kind of idolise them. The Psalms give us another way to deal with our feelings, though. Um. American author Tim Keller, he makes this point, I think it's really helpful. The Psalms, they, they, they don't suppress or pretend our feelings don't exist. 
They're not the kind of Victorian stiff upper lip. But they're not just sort of open expressions of our feelings either. Um, uh, they don't pretend they don't exist, but they don't, they don't just give their, the feelings free reign either. They don't deny them or just vent them. What the Psalms do is they pray them. They pray our feelings. The Psalms teach us not just how to deny or just vent our feelings. The Psalms teach us how to pray our feelings. And they hold out for us a real and deep heart transformation. And that's exactly what you see in this psalm. Psalm 73, you can see it if you look at the first and the last verses. So right at the start, the whole psalm starts with this public affirmation of something to writer, a guy called Asaph. Um, this writer, uh, Asaph, it, it start, the psalm starts with something that he knows is true. He knows at least in his head this thing is true. At, at very least, he knows he ought to know that it's true. He ought to say this. He kind of knows the right thing to say. He knows it's the right thing to say. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Uh, uh, maybe you picked this up on the way through. As the psalm goes on, it, it sort of journeys through the deep troubles of this guy's heart. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But do you notice where it ends up? We'll skip right to the end in verse 28. Asaph has gone through this incredible transformation by the end of the psalm. He starts the psalm stating this kind of conviction, or uh, ab- not, not, it's really kind of an abstract truth and affirmation yes god is good to those in israel to those who are pure in heart yes but by the end uh, this has become not just a thing out there an abstract kind of truth to hold on to it's become a personal reality for asaph verse 28 but as for me it is good to be near god I have made the Sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. It might be for you that this is kind of where you're at, friends, hovering on the edge of belief. Uh, Perhaps even saying things that you know are right or at least you think you ought to say, but having that feeling of being about to slip. Maybe that's not you now, but maybe it's where you'll be one day. And this, friends, is a, star, a psalm to store up in your heart and to come back to again and again. Uh, it's certainly where Asaph was, hovering on the edge of belief. Verse 2, again, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. Why? Why had he almost lost his foothold? He goes on. The answer is envy. Envy. Verse 3. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Uh, Asaph had this period of doubt and crisis in his life. But he knew it was ultimately an issue of his heart. Um, it's, it's tempting because often we can kind of think about doubts as purely intellectual things. You know? How can a good God allow wicked people to prosper? You, know, you kind of do the mental arithmetic and you 
and I'll try and spit out a sum at the end, so I'll figure it out logically. But Asaph knows, for him, that's not really, that's not really the issue. The real struggle, what's causing his doubts, is his heart. His heart that envies. And you, do you notice how his envy kind of twists his perception of reality? Um, he paints this extreme picture of these people that he envies in verse 4. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. They have no struggles. I mean, now Asaph hasn't done kind of a comprehensive survey of all the wicked people in Israel and found that they never get a cold, have perfect families and never have any arguments. You know? that's, that's not what he's saying here. Um, he sees this, this general trend that uh, people who give no thought to God seem to get on pretty well in life. They seem to get on just fine. And, and he zeroes in on it and it becomes within him this growing and festering sore that kind of eats him up. And envy does this to us, right? It makes us forget about all the good in our own life. Uh, and lifts up the good in other people's lives so that it becomes everything and everything is black and white and their life is perfect and mine is horrible. So he's kind of, uh, his envy has twisted his perception but all of this is, uh, is made worse by the character of these people that seem to sail through life. Verse 6, and just kind of let this wash over you, it's this pretty intense description of these people who he envies. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their, their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They've got all these people around them, fawning all over them. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Everything seems to go well for these guys who uh, give no thought to God. They do give thought to God, don't they? They give thought to him and they say, how would he know? He doesn't know anything. They consciously dismiss him. Here's a guy who, in the face of all of this that he sees, he's disoriented, his kind of perception has been twisted. He has this festering sore in his heart and he's about to fall. He, he's got this big gap between what he knows in verse 1 and what he sees before him. What he sees before him. God is good to those who are pure in heart, but how come those who are wicked in heart seem to be better off? So this disorientation, this envy grows into bitterness and doubt in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence. All his attempts to live under God's law seem to come to nothing. They seem to be worthless in vain. Not only do they not bring him the prosperity that the godless seem to enjoy, it brings him the opposite in verse 14. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. This is kind of the low point of this psalm. Asaph acknowledges his journey into bitterness and envy 
and doubts. And friends, I just want to pause at this point and because the, the very fact that this is in the Bible is incredible, isn't it? Um, we're talking about the guy who wrote this and went through this experience, Asaph. He was, we find out elsewhere that he was like a music director for the tabernacle uh, uh, in King David's day. He was, he was someone in a, a nationally important religious role, someone that people would look up to, um, not only that, you know, to top it all off, he's an inspired author of Holy Scripture. So uh, this is Asaph, the guy who wrote this. And yet, even he, even he goes through this intense and probably, you know, over a period of time, experience of doubt and struggle. It gives a realness to this experience, doesn't it, seeing this here? It doesn't sort of just wash over them and say, uh, it doesn't see those experiences as good in and of themselves, but they're real, and anyone can experience them. Even Asaph. What's most important isn't actually whether you experience them or not, it's what you do with them. Because the psalm doesn't end here. The psalm... Uh, In fact, this is where it starts to turn around in verse 15. He realises if he goes, if he had just kept going down that path, verse 15, if I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Um, When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. He tries to understand it. It's not like he's letting go of his kind of mind at this point. He is trying to figure it out. But it leaves him troubled. It leaves him troubled deeply. And then verse 17. Verse 17 is the key point in this whole psalm. It's the turning point. He's been disoriented, confused, bitter, doubting. He's a man coming undone at his seams. And it's at this point that he starts to get put back together again. He starts to have his vision reset. He starts to see things clearly. He starts to have his heart reoriented, retuned, retuned to God's reality. It's this point in verse 17 when he enters the sanctuary of God. Now, the sanctuary of God... Um, a, a way of talking about God's special pl- presence in Israel, the place of God's presence in Israel. Uh, God was always present everywhere. Um, but here was this, this sign of his special presence with his people, that he was their God and they were his people. The sanctuary was where they could gather together and have their sin dealt with through sacrifice and hear God's good word. And at this point in the Bible's story, it was this movable uh, structure called a tabernacle, if you're familiar with that, but soon after this Asaph, it became the temple uh, uh, under David's son Solomon. But Asaph's key turning point was going into this place, entering the sanctuary of God. Before he goes in there, all he sees around him leaves him disoriented and doubting 
and envious and bitter in a world uh, that left him like that. He leaves that world and he enters this sanctuary and and here in this sanctuary, Asaph has an encounter. He has an encounter with the God of the universe and it totally transforms him. Uh, It is a personal encounter that moves him from the kind of public affirming of theological truth that he does in verse 1, moves him from that to a personal lived reality, a deep experience of those truths. And the key to it as you read on, uh, or as we read at the end of verse 17, the key to it is seeing this present world, what's before our eyeballs, not just seeing that, but seeing it in the light of eternity. Seeing it in the light of eternity, seeing how people seem to be here and now isn't the last word isn't the most important reality. There is a final destiny that overshadows the present. And as, as Asaph goes on, that kind of big picture is actually has a kind of fearful element to it. There's a fearful aspect to this. Asaph encounters, when he goes to the sanctuary, he encounters the God of judgment. For Asaph, the wicked, the envy of the to, for Asaph to envy the wicked as he was doing before, and to doubt that God's way was good was really to fail to see the awesome majesty of God. That He is good, and His goodness is so white hot, and His justice is so complete that there will come a day when what seems so strong and firm today will, from verse 18, be placed on slippery ground and brought down to ruin, suddenly destroyed, swept away by terrors. And it's God who will do this. You see in verse 27, he is a personal judge. He himself will do this to those who have been unfaithful to him. He is good, and those who live in rebellion against him live in rebellion against goodness and righteousness, and love, and peace. But there will come a day when he will bring an end to that. And on that day, verse 20, those prosperous, wicked people will be forgotten like a bad dream, the psalm says. I had a bad dream the other night. Something to do with an evil whale. You can psychoanalyze it later. Tell me all my hidden, deep fears that I'm burying somewhere. Um, I remember it felt so real though <laughs> but now I, when I look back I can't remember any details about it um, you know that, that dreams are like that right uh, and it doesn't really trouble me now <laughs> I've sort of moved on with my life and I know it's it just a dream and I can enjoy whales uh, but the fearful reality Asaph encounters is that well those opposed to God will be like that dream. They'll vanish like that. They, they won't have the last word. You see how, how we keep reading along. Asaph also, he feels, he, he sees this judgment on the wicked. But he also feels God's judgment on himself. Not in a kind of eternal sense, but 
after he's had this reorienting experience of God as he comes into the sanctuary and sees the reality of the world, after he's had this, he looks back on his period of doubts and envy and he sees it in a new light from verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Asaph acknowledges his journey into bitterness and doubt. Um, He doesn't mask it. He doesn't refuse to face it. But he doesn't kind of justify it either or necessarily see it as good. As 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 he looks back, he can see that his anger was really to act like a brute beast, he says. Um, he was ignorant. He was, he was living in line just with what he saw in front of him and not with real reality, not with God's reality. But friends, and here is the wonder and the deep transforming grace of this psalm. Even then, Asaph can see that about himself. All the way through it, even through his ignorance and his senseless thrashing, all through that, God was with him, holding his hand to comfort and to guide him. Verse 23, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Having this encounter with God in his sanctuary moved Asaph from just saying that God is good to Israel to himself knowing God's goodness for him, God's presence with him. The future that he had through being with God and God being with him even in his own ignorance and foolishness. And while others might have some riches and success and prosperity in this life, with God Asaph has something infinitely more valuable. Verse 25, these are just beautiful verses, aren't they? And these are the reorienting verses in the light of the prosperity of the people Asaph sees. Well, that comes to nothing compared to this. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. That's what turns him around. What leads him to move from just saying that God is good to praying and singing and rejoicing in verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Asaph was able to say that because he encountered God in his sanctuary. Um, We have a surer, fuller, more perfect presence of God with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is the true temple, the perfect and once for all sacrifice for sin. And we encounter him in his word by his spirit. We encounter him, maybe better, it's, it's better to say we are encountered by him as by the power of his spirit we gather and we hear this reorienting, reshaping, reforming word to us. That is our sanctuary experience, our encounter with God. We see in a far brighter way even than Asaph that by trusting in Jesus, being united to him by faith, we are always with God. He holds our right hand. He guides us into glory. So whom have we in heaven but him? Earth has nothing we desire but him. But even what I just said there is not quite it, is it? I mean, there's a truth to that, but the psalm is individual, personal. Not just whom have we in heaven, but whom have I in, in heaven beside you? This psalm opens that question up for each of us personally. So we just, as we kind of reflect on it, uh, I guess the question that opens up for us this psalm is, can you, can you say that? Maybe... Maybe you can't say it because you yourself, you know you're not in a saving relationship with this God. You haven't put your trust in Jesus and received his forgiveness and new life. There is a warning here. I hope you can hear it. Please hear it. Turn, turn to this God in, repent, in humility and, and repentance and trusting in him and he will hear you. But it, it might be that you can't say that yourself for a slightly di- or a, a, a different reason. Asaph was a believer. Uh, he was part of God's people and yet, as we saw, he, went, he had this period of intense darkness and it may be that for you that that's where you are or have been. Uh, one of the things about this psalm is we have it all in one hit, right? It's kind of all there together. You see this whole journey compressed into one psalm Uh, but it's important to see it was a journey for us it was a a process he went through over time this isn't this isn't a quick fix from his darkness a kind of snap out of it response sometimes sometimes darkness is our only friend just read psalm 88 if you want to but what asaph does here What Asaph does here is show us the way out of the darkness. The way to have our hearts reoriented by the big picture of God and his work, by the gospel, by this good news that has come to us. It may be for you that that's all you can do for a time is to just keep coming to him in the gathering of his people, hearing his word that lifts you above your pain and shows you his glorious grace in Jesus. And by that grace, pray. Pray that what you hear and know as true in your head would settle deeply in your heart and lead you to God's light again. But... It's a powerful psalm, though, for all of us, wherever we're at, though, isn't it? 
it really raises the stakes, I think, on what we do when we gather together as God's people, what we do in home groups and when we come under God's Word together on Sundays. It, it raises the stakes when we carve out time to meditate on God's Word and pray to Him as, as individuals, in our families, around the dinner table, with our kids at bedtime. What we are doing is encountering God in Christ having our hearts tuned to his grace, his story, his big picture of reality, his reality. I mean, we're constantly surrounded by other stories, aren't we? (laughs) By other messages, by other visions of reality that will disorient us, that will cloud our vision of the gospel and that can easily lead our feet to be about to stumble and lead us into envy and bitterness and doubt. But here is the word that declares to you the riches of what you have in Christ, the eternal security and peace that shape your present and mean that you don't need to be envious, you don't need to doubt. We have certainty of God's good presence with us through the historic reality of Jesus, his death and resurrection, Here is the word, friends, this gospel that can lead each of us to say for ourselves, but as for me, not just in theory, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Friends, I'm going to invite you to join with me as we've been doing over the last few weeks in saying, praying, praying this psalm out together. Um, it's a longer psalm, so we're going to do it a little bit differently. Um, please just stay seated. Um, there'll be um, words up on the screen. You, I, I had a bit of trouble setting them apart, but if you see the purple ones in italics, that's for us all to say, and I'll say the rest. So we'll all start with verse 1. There'll be a few verses in the middle that I invite you to say and then we'll all finish it up together as well. Does that make sense? But let's use this as an opportunity to respond to God's word, friends, as we ourselves pray this prayer together and retune our hearts to the song of his grace. So friends, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, together... Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in hearts. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. 
All day long I've been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And together, friends, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you together. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hands. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. 